Welcome to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast, where we explore the conscious use of technology. Listen in to hear thought leaders and other guests discuss the human relationship with technology and learning to thrive in the digital era. Hosted by the author of the international best-selling digital self-mastery series and being at work, Dr. Heidi Forbes Usta. Welcome to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Heidi Forbes Usta, and today we are honored to have our guest, Howard Rheingold, author, educator, futurist, and artist joining us. Howard's most recent books are NetSmart, How to Thrive Online, and Mind Amplifier, and a dozen other books. He popularized the term virtual community, taught at Stanford for 10 years, and Cal Berkeley for four. He's a distinguished fellow at Institute for the Future, and his 2005 TED Talk on Way New Collaboration has had nearly 1 million views. He's now a full-time artist and quite a wonderful individual. I look forward to sharing him with you. Welcome to the Evolving Digital Self Podcast. What an incredible journey. I mean, it seems that you, you've been through so many different changes and evolutions in, the, in watching technology change, and now that's magnified, if anything. Has that changed your relationship with technology during the course of that, or has it always been a smooth ride for you? Well, you know, I've always uh, considered myself a writer. I've never really been an academic. They, they allowed me to teach at at Berkeley and Stanford because I was the first person to really write about what are now called social media in the 1980s. So when I started out as a writer, I had the tools that, that every writer had. I had a typewriter, I had a telephone, and I had a library card. And if I wanted to do research, I picked up the phone and tried to get people to talk to me. Or I, I got on the Muni and I went to the library and I looked around the library. The idea that I might be able to connect my computer and my telephone to some kind of database intrigued me a long time ago. There was something called the New York Times Information Bank that that had a a very slow modem, a modem uh, some people might remember as a device that connects your telephone to your computer at very slow speeds. And you're not always connected. You have to make a a connection. They had, uh, I think, 110 uh, bits per second, which is extremely slow. I mean, now we're getting billions of bits per second. And you could you could search the New York Times Information Bank, which was just really a kind of a card catalog to their articles. And that fired up my imagination. So when, uh, back to my story about Xerox Park, I, I talked yeah. myself into a job there, ideal job for someone interested in technology and and. I, I very quickly understood that these are not just typewriters. They are, as I've been calling them since then, mind amplifiers. And that led me to a person by the name of Doug Engelbart that many people still haven't heard of, but he and his team invented most of what we use today. The mouse, hypertext, windows on a screen, using tech, use, word processing, using a computer to, to manipulate text, putting video and text together on screens. I could go on. When I, and I met Engelbart, and it was really, I think, a, a life-changing experience to meet this man who wasn't in it uh, for the money. He wasn't in it because he was a, a, an academic scientist. He wanted to improve human ability to solve problems because he saw we were creating a lot of problems for ourselves, and the problems were, were very complicated. 
And at that time, in the early 1980s, there was a lot of publicity about these new personal computers and Steve Jobs and, and Bill Gates. And I saw a much larger story involving names that, that people weren't aware of, like Doug Engelbart, but also Alan Kay at Xerox Park and Bob Taylor, and going back further, John von Neumann and uh, Alan Turing, um, Ada Lovelace, Charles Babbage. The whole idea that intellectual achievements are built on intellectual achievements really underlies computer technology after teaching undergraduates and graduates for 10 years, I realized that, that people, probably forever, but particularly these days, have very little sense of history. They, they don't really understand the way visionaries and institutions built on each other. So I wrote a book called Tools for Thought that was published in 1985. And in the process of writing Tools for Thought, I, I got a modem and I started exploring the world online. And it wasn't just access to information, it was access to other people. And as a writer, I'm, I'm alone at home all day. So that was really a godsend to me. I, I didn't, you know, a lot of writers in places like New York go out to a bar. But, you know, I didn't want to do that. So that was very interesting to me socially, but also uh, what's now called social capital or knowledge capital became immediately obvious to me. I just started uploading what I knew to people who were interested in, in what I knew for free. I just gave it away. And I found that I was developing a network of people who not only fed on, on the knowledge that I was sharing, but if I had a question, they would have answers. And it turned out, this, here's where the social capital and knowledge capital comes in, that for everything I, I gave away, I got 10 times back. And I met, I made friends. Eventually, in 1987, I wrote an article called Virtual Communities, because I had been challenged by people who said, well, if you use a computer to communicate with people, you, there must be something wrong with you. And I said, no, this is just like a real community. Um, when, when people are, are, are sick, we, we go and visit them. When they're dying, we, we sit by their bedside. We go to their weddings. Um, we go to their funerals. It's... it's in many senses, like a real community. And so that's the reason that they allowed me to teach at academic institutions, because there's something called the, the, the uh, citation index that's used to judge academic performance. And everybody who has written about what are now called social media ends up uh, referencing the, the kind of the Ur article about it, which was my article in Whole Earth Review on virtual communities. Um, even then, I, I wasn't uncritical about it. I, I've always been both enthusiastic and, um, and, and thinking critically about it. But for the most part, for me, social media has been a huge boon. And to answer your, your question, it's like I started out with a horse and buggy and ended, ended up having my own space shuttle. I mean, uh, you know, I've got billions of bits per second. I'm connected with people all over the world. I have this gigantic high-resolution screen. Uh, I can even just talk to it like, like Star Trek. So I was fortunate to have been 
a young writer at the time that the technology started emerging in the area that I lived. So I, I was able to be a participant observer as the technology e evolved. And it, and it has evolved so dramatically. One little icon on your smartphone has more memory uh, devoted to it than the entire um, Apollo uh, moon lander did. It's, it's really, in terms of the hardware, uh, miraculous what, what's happened. And I'm really interested in the way people, again, have built on that, have built applications that enable us to share knowledge and to, and to build communities to help each other. A lot of not so good things have happened as well. It, it empowers people who, who have malevolent ends. It, it enables just a tsunami of bad information. Um, well, we can get to that. When, that's why I wrote NetSmart uh, in 2012. We're talking decades later. So I've been immersed in this and have been trying to figure out what it means since the early 1980s. I love your analogy of starting out in a horse and buggy and now you're on a rocket ship. I mean, I think a lot of us feel that way. It's sort of, you know, or at least those of us who, who started out in this world pre-digital native there's a lot of change that's happened in the way that we can connect with people and, and maintain those connections and create communities. I mean, you look at the digital natives and then for them, that mediation, mediated tool doesn't even really, it's not even part of the interaction as far as they're concerned. They're just talking about the interaction that they have. So it's wonderful what, you know, where, where your journey has taken you and, and your perspective on that. I really, really do appreciate it. I'm curious because when we went for our walk, you talked a little bit about Pantheon, which is where you're hosting your stuff now, and that, and how your your movement from uh, sort of the general population of social media and open knowledge sharing and forums to a place like Pantheon. Can you oh, share Patreon. a little Patreon? Sorry, um, about Patreon. the Patreon. Sorry. Um, about that process and what made that shift occur for you, and how how that you know what is what that's meant for you. In a word, Facebook. As more and more people share information on Facebook, it, it's become really the, the, the default place for people to share information. And I have participated in and, and created and advised dozens of different virtual communities. The, the, the world of the web and the world of the Internet is, is much more than just Facebook. But for so much of the world, they don't know that. They think Facebook is the Internet. Facebook is the web. Facebook is where you share information. And, uh, you know, I accept that as the price of, of reaching the, the people I want to reach. But, of course, recently we've seen a lot of problems coming out of Facebook. Um, the manipulation of the U.S. election, the, the rise of hate groups, the ex not only misinformation, but um, weaponized artificial intelligence propaganda that micro-targets people automatically. Um, I became less comfortable sharing my information with people for free, but enriching Facebook in the process. Mm -hmm. And... I recently retired, so I no longer write books. I no longer teach college students. I, I very rarely go out and, and give um, keynote 
speeches, I'm an artist now. And part of the problem, the problem with the web is the attention-based advertising business model that, you know, recently uh, people such as Tristan Harris have written about the way engineers are using what psychologists know about addictive behavior to build attention attracting, attention distracting and, and attention sucking um, behavior into the apps they build because selling people's attention to advertisers is how, how money is made online. Patreon came along. Actually, a friend of mine, um, who was a friend of my daughter's, started it because he was a very, very talented artist, musician, and video artist. And he found that he had millions of views on YouTube and was making hundreds of dollars. And he came up with this idea of, well, why don't we enable people to easily pay each other for culture? Well, th this goes down a whole other rabbit hole. I, I taught, as part of teaching the, the, the sociology of, of cyberspace, sociologists have long held, it's called the logic of collective action, that large groups of people who are not financially incented and who are, are not related to each other will not create public goods. They won't cooperate, they won't share, they won't give away. It turned out that if you lower barriers, if you make it very easy for people to share and for people to pay each other, then they will. So Patreon is a platform that enables creators. You could be an artist like myself, you could be a musician, you could, you could be a, a video creator, you could be a podcaster to, to put yourself up, your, your, your material up there. Some of it you can make public, free to anybody. And I continue to make more than half of my material public. And part of it you can make available to patrons. Patrons give their credit card and they can pay you by creation or they can pay you by the month. So people pay me $2 or 5 or 10 or 25 or $100 a month. And they get various rewards for that, for, for what they give. And I can interact with them. So I have an opportunity to talk directly with, with, with my patrons. And, and I'm very interested in that as a, an alternative business model for paying for culture. Because you see, there's been a problem for a long time of people paying for culture. I was the editor of the Whole Earth Review for four years in the 1990s. And it turns out anyone who tries to publish a magazine knows this. People don't pay for magazines. Subscriptions are not enough. You have to sell advertising as well. So if we can somehow find an alternative to the advertising and attention business model, then I think that that's, that could free up the web. And also it's exciting for me. And certainly the amount of money is, is not um, significant compared to what I make as a writer or a speaker, but it's really, it's really thrilling to see that people believe in me and communicate with me directly. So that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Howard Reingold, one word. I think it's, it's such a great concept, and I love the fact that it has the community element where you can engage with your audience, because in the past, it seems like there's been sort of an either-or with these commercial sites where you're able to, you know, it's sort of either an e-commerce place or there's a community, and, you know, you can host them on something that's more uniform that maybe has a forum in it, but 
it sounds like from what you're describing, it really provides a place to bring all of those pieces together so that your community can actually engage with your work and with you, which is really yeah. nice. Yeah. And it, it's nice to be excited about something new because it, it seemed that with the rise of what Amazon, Apple, Google, Microsoft, it's left out that very rich ecosystem of startups that really created the web. The web wasn't created by a government. It wasn't created by a corporation. It was created by a bunch of people who put up their websites. And I'm, I'm happy to see that that's still alive, although it is under threat. Yeah. And actually, you know, you talk about under threat. So another part of our conversation when we were walking, which is very current in the news, is net neutrality. And I know you have some very strong views about that, and I'd be curious if you're willing to share a little bit of that. Well, okay, so until recently, you really had to be a, a technology geek and a policy wonk to, to understand this. But it's really easy to understand. The, the people who, who created the Internet protocols that enable our computers to communicate with each other and to, and to link up into this great big web, the people who created it didn't want innovators to have to ask permission to create Google in their hotel room, I mean, in their dorm room, or they didn't want to have to rewire something in order to turn the internet into the World Wide Web. They wanted anybody with their computer connected to the internet to be able to, to create something. And they didn't want the big companies that move the bits around to discriminate between the, the startup in the dorm room and the multinational corporation. So, for example, if you are a Comcast or an AT&T, you not only move a lot of the information around that enables the web to exist, but maybe you own companies that sell content, you sell movies. Wouldn't it be nice if you were that company to say, well, you can get our movies at high speed, but if you want this guy on YouTube that we've never heard of, um, it's going to be really slow unless that, that guy on YouTube pays a huge amount of money that he or she can't afford. So that's net neutrality. The, the companies that carry the bits aren't supposed to discriminate among those bits. They're all seem to be equal. And there's been some obfuscation about that recently that the people who were paid a lot of money by lobbyists to change this rule, have said that this was an Obama-era rule and the, and the Internet existed in an unregulated form for a long time. This is completely untrue. It is a lie. The Internet was created to be neutral. Um, so now the FCC has overruled net neutrality, and we will see companies like Comcast and AT&T beginning to act in their self-interest. And it's, it, it may be difficult to impossible to be tomorrow's YouTube or tomorrow's Google. So the battle isn't over. It's moved to the legislative realm. But I think it's important for everybody who enjoys uh, online media to understand that what, what's happened has really been a, a seizure of it's, it's killing the goose that laid the golden egg. Well, 
And and that's so frustrating because there are so many bits of great content that are really on the end of the long tail that really are, you know, those smaller producers that are creating great content, product, services, whatever, that you won't be able to reach that that's in that same way if they're not, if they don't have the same access. So we hope we can turn something like that around or back around, I should say, to where it was intended. This episode is being brought to you by Zero to Launch in 14 Days, the premier podcast training course for anyone wanting to get their message out to the world in a bigger way. Podcasting is growing by leaps and bounds, and for a good reason. It's the one medium left to the individual, the independent, and the soloist. You don't need a big team, or any team at all for that matter, and you can jump right in there next to NPR, Tony Robbins, and every other well-known name to be included in the mix. This easy-to-podcast course was created by my mentor, Michael Neely, and the fact that you're listening to me right now is proof he knows what he's doing. Go to www.michaelneely.com or click on the link in my show notes to sign up for a podcast launch breakthrough session so you can learn how to get your own show up and running with minimal investment and maximal ease. In this personal breakthrough session with Michael, he'll answer your questions and give you direction on proven techniques for creating, growing, and monetizing a successful podcast. Don't wait any longer. Sign up for your free call today and see how the Zero to Launch in 14 Days program can help you get your message heard. So a little bit of a swing here because I know, you know, one of my favorite things about our visit was actually checking out your art. And I love, I love your art. And um, this is the part where I actually, those of you that are listening, I wish you could see what was behind Howard because his stuff is so cool. Mm. And I don't know if there's any way that you could describe it for our listeners so that they can understand what you work with, that it really integrates some just sort of this beautiful sense of energy, depth, and technology, and art, and creativity in a fascinating way that, that I really love. What brought you there? Uh, well, okay, you know, I, I need yeah. to frame this with a little story. Sure. Which, that, that when I was a kid, when I was in, in school in the early grades, first grade, second grade, I objected to being told I had to sit in this cramped desk all day long. And I already knew what they were trying to teach me. So I was a troublemaker. And in my school, they sent the troublemakers to the art room. And fortunately, the art teacher was my mom, Mrs. Rheingold. And Mrs. Rheingold's art philosophy was that we are all artists, all humans need and want to express ourselves creatively. But most people get shut down when we're very young. Someone says, oh, you can't draw a horse that looks like a horse. Don't, don't try to be an artist. Um, so she taught permission rather than technique. So I have painted and sculpted my entire life for my own pleasure. And, you know, I've sold a few things and, and I've had a show, but I'm not really in the, in the art game the way I was in, the, in the, the writing game. And very recently, within the last, I guess I'd say five years, some technology has come along, electronic te- technology, that has enabled the creation of art that combines um, reflected light, which is what pigment is, and radiated light, which is what those, what, what, light bulbs are. 
and particularly those very bright colored light bulbs we're seeing these days called LEDs. And uh, a group of design teachers who are also engineers created a, a small device called an Arduino, particularly for people like me, for artists who aren't electronics experts to enable their art to speak, to light up, to, to react, for you to be able to wave your hands at it and, and, and have it react to that. So I have embraced that technology and I learned woodworking in the last few years so that I could build frames in which I could enclose pigment and illuminate the pigment with LEDs and get effects that you wouldn't be able to get otherwise. And now I'm using things like infrared sensors so you can, you can wave your hands at it, um, building tiny video screens into things. And, you know, these things used to cost a lot and they used to be very large. So an Arduino costs about $25 and it's about the size of a pack of cards. And now they're about the size of a stick of gum and they're getting down towards $5. So you can build them into all kinds of things. So I, I think you can discern from this that, that I, I usually have my antenna out for things that are new and interesting. And I have a habit of stretching beyond my capabilities. So I, I needed to find people who knew more than I do to show me how to do this stuff. And that, as an educator, led me to what, what's, what's called maker ed. Um, one of the people I interviewed about that said, making is a stance towards learning. And back to me objecting to sitting in a, in a cramped desk, listening to them tell me what I already know, I think a lot of the, the problem with education as schooling is that students and learners are so passive. They sit there and they're lectured at and they figure out what's going, going to be on the test. And over the years, it kind of dulls their natural love of learning. If you get a kid or a student or an old guy like me involved in a project that's meaningful to us, then we will actively and enthusiastically learn what we need to learn in order to do that project. So learning, finding out where technology is leading us, and evaluating it and making art are all kind of intertwined with what I do these days. I love it. And, uh, you know, I, I recommend folks, you know, search, search the web and find uh, Howard's stuff because it's really, really cool. And I'm curious, because of that curiosity that you have, that you want, you're constantly wanting to learn and see where things are going, what are you excited about now? What do you think is sort of the next thing that you're going to be excited about? Or have you already found that thing that, you, that you're really excited to learn more about? Well, I, th I think the most exciting thing is something that I've been interested in for a while. Uh, I wrote a book called Smart Mobs in 2002 about what's obvious now, but wasn't obvious then, which is that the, the, the mobile telephone, the computer, and the internet were combining into, into something new. And trying to figure out what was the big effect of that, what was that likely to be as a futurist? And I concluded that, that it enabled, it lowered the barriers for collective action and enabled people to, to do things together in ways that they couldn't before. And that got me interested in this whole idea of collective action and cooperation. Um, 
I actually I did a TED talk on the main stage in 2005. Uh, it's titled "Way New Collaboration," and what I called for was a new interdisciplinary study of cooperation and collective action, from the the subcellular level to the level of ecosystems to the way. I mean, the internet, the web is an existence proof of if if you have an architecture of participation, people will. Participate in their own self-interest, and they will create what the logic of collective action used to say they couldn't create, which was the the web, the, a public good that everyone could use. What could be more important than understanding how humans cooperate, and what the bar- barriers to cooperation are? You know, our biggest problems um, dealing with global warming, um, nuclear arms proliferation. Um, Racial enmity; these are all cooperation problems. And well, an analogy that I use was that um, before biology, let's say five or six hundred years ago, if there was a, a plague, um, you looked to the foreigners or the witches or sin as the cause. Finally, someone figured out that um, they're microorganisms. If if you don't put your sewage system and your water system together, your your children won't die. I think we're really at the pre microorganism level of understanding cooperation now. Sociologists understand some things, computer scientists understand some things, psychologists understand some things, but because of the nature of our knowledge creating institutions, which which really concentrate on your, the more specialized you are, the more successful you are. There really has not been this broad interdisciplinary study. So that was something that I felt in 2005 when I did that TED talk. I could I could work on this for the rest of my life. Well, it, it turns out that it's not so easy to move in institutions. I do teach a course online once a year on introduction to cooperation studies, and again, that's the kind of information that I share on on Patreon, which is a you, it's it's not rocket science. It's just a little piece of knowledge from here and a little piece of knowledge from there. You can begin to understand why we do the things we do and why we don't do some of the things that that we ought to do. And I know that if this happens, it will. It, it's something that's going to happen beyond my lifetime. What am I? So I continue to be interested in that. I continue to be interested in. A pedagogy, a, a way of teaching that that uses technology, uses social media, but it's not really about throwing technology at educational problems. It's again about rekindling that natural excitement that humans have for learning through making things through student agency, learner agency. They're so disempowered. The best they can do is try to figure out what's on the test. I say let's let's have the students create the tests. Let's have the learners grade themselves. You know, when you get out into the work world, you are expected to be able to evaluate yourself. You're expected to be able to evaluate your peers. You learn nothing of that in school. In fact, if you collaborate, you're cheating, um, and you're wholly dependent on the teacher's evaluation. Of you, so I, I continue to be interested in that. I've I've done more than 100 video interviews and written blog posts with innovators in digital media and learning. 
There's a lot of this material on my website, rheingold.com. I mean, literally hundreds of, of articles that I've written about that. So I continue to be interested in that, although I'm no longer actively teaching. I'm, I'm not really actively writing about it. But there's an exciting world out there of people who are experimenting with giving learning power back to the, the learners. And technology can be a big help. You know what? You don't really need social media. You could do it with, with post-it notes. You can do it with three-by-five cards. It's just that the media are where learners live these days. And it enables learning to take place not just in the classroom, but throughout your life. Yeah, I think there's there's something that's uh, quite powerful about that, though, is just that connection, that, the opportunity to connect with other people that are innovating, cross-disciplinary, and just to really understand, you know, where the conversation is happening so that you can connect to people and, and really learn and create new things beyond what one individual is capable of. So that collaboration and crossbreeding, essentially, can create something even more powerful. And in terms of, so, you know, a lot of our audience is actually entrepreneurs or business owners. And I think in the past, there was a lot of sort of fear of sharing what you're developing. It's like, I got to hold on to it because it's, it's my innovation. It's my new thing. And I think what we're learning is that if we don't put it out there, we don't have the opportunity to really make it the best thing that it can be because sometimes you need that external input and innovation. So you touched on it a little bit, but on the innovation space and sort of, you know, creating things that are better for the greater good or, or whatever, um, do you have any ideas around technology well, no, I, and innovation? I talk about how innovations build on, on previous innovations and this idea that I've got this idea and I have to guard it because it's, it's the key to my success, is really naive. It's, um, na uh, ideas are, are easy. Execution is difficult. And you need a network to not only execute, but to understand who the competition is and, and who your customers are and what is happening out there. In, in, the, in the world of educators and students, uh, I teach personal learning networks. For example, when I started learning to, to do video, I went onto Twitter and I looked for someone who was a video expert and seemed to know what they were talking about. And I looked to see who that person followed. And I made a list of video experts on Twitter. There's a, an app called uh, paper.li that enables you to take a a list on Twitter, and every day it will compile a little news briefing based on what the people on that list have put out. You know, the, the President of the United States gets this intelligence briefing every morning um, from the intelligence community. Now anybody can create multiple such networks. That's the first step, is identifying a network. The second step is I amplify that network, retweet something that someone else has tweeted, or, or uh, do an at reply uh, to them, answering a question if they have it. If you feed your network, your network will feed you. And eventually you begin to communicate with these people and you get to know each other. Educators call it personal learning networks, but I think entrepreneurs have to have it as well. 
you know, it's a it's a bit of an informational skill. I mean, I just explained most of it to you, but it's also being open to to understanding that innovation happens in networks these days. Yeah, no, I, I think absolutely the networks are so key. And I mean, they, they happened before. It's just that now we have access to a far greater network and it doesn't take that personal introduction just to share knowledge. So it's, it, I think it's pretty exciting. We just need to take advantage of the tools that are available to us. This has been so wonderful. I swear I could talk to you for hours because I think that, you know, there's just, just so many wonderful gems in there, but I know we have a limited amount of time. So I want to make sure that we can have some kind of closure here. And an interesting piece of that is sort of what are your favorite technologies to use today that really help you augment who you are and your ability to be your best? Well, you know, I think people overlook the way search has, has really changed the way we, we think. Um, it's an extension of your brain. You, you really need to know how to do it. You know, one of the little projects I did, um, I talked about the Arduino. There's another one called a, a Raspberry Pi. A Raspberry Pi is actually a complete computer for about $25. And I made my own Google Home with it. And, you know, with, with something like that, let's see if I can get it to work right now. I've got it at my desktop here. Who is Howard Rheingold? According to Wikipedia, Howard Rheingold is a critic, writer, and teacher. His specialties are on the cultural, social, and political implications of modern communication media, such as the internet, mobile telephony, and virtual communities. So, uh, you know what? I can press a button and ask a question and get an answer. Isn't that miraculous? I, I, you know, I think that that's extremely important. And then it's just everything that everybody else knows is available out there. We live in an age where you can ask any question at any time, anywhere, and get a million answers. Of course, the problem is that it's up to you, the person who asks a question, to determine which is the accurate answer and which is the inaccurate answer and which is the deliberate misinformation. So that, that, that brings me to um, really the, the last book that I wrote was in response to since the 1980s, I wrote about personal computers in the 1980s. I wrote about what's now called social media in the 1990s. I wrote about mobile media in the 2000s. Critics and academics have asked me, well, is this stuff any good for us? And my answer in 2012 was, it depends on what we know and, and how many people have sufficient knowledge. It's a matter of literacy. Um, you need to know what Hemingway called crap detection to make use of that miraculous ability to search for information. And now, of course, with this weaponized lying online, uh, the, the, the strength of our democracies may be at, at stake. So I thought about what are the essential literacies that I would like people to know that would enable the person who knows them to succeed, and that would enrich the commons if more people know them. So it starts with attention. Attention is really the foundation of thought and communication. And I think everybody knows that attention is, is challenged these days by these distracting screens. You see people walking down the street, bumping into each other, and texting while they're driving. 
You know, it's not that we are wholly incapable of controlling our attention. It's a, it's not taught. So how do you learn to control your attention? You know what? Again, it's not rocket science and, and, and people can, can learn it. Um, the, the second literacy was crap detection because again, we live in the world of superabundant information, much of it bad information. We're, we're from bad medical information that could kill you to bad political information that, that could take your freedom away. It's really important for individuals and, and citizens to understand how, how to separate the wheat from the chaff. Participation is the next literacy. We, we would not have a web without participation. Um, you wouldn't have Facebook or, or, or Google or YouTube if it wasn't for, well, in, in all three cases, teenagers who knew how to participate. Um, it's not just for entrepreneurs. It, it's for everybody. It's for the podcasters. It's, it's for the people with, with websites. It's not just for the mass media to tell us what's going on. It's for us to tell each other what's going on. And as long as that continues to happen, we will have a, a healthy, if flawed, online commons. The next one is, cl is collaboration. There's so many forms of collaboration. There's, there's virtual communities. There's social production. There's um, support communities for people with health problems. Um, I could go on and, and list a dozen forms of, of collaboration and cooperation online. If you know them, you are vastly empowered. If you, if you have a rare disease that only one in a million people have, there are 2,000 others online. Um, but you need to know how to find them and you need to know how to connect with them. And, and finally, uh, network awareness. We live in a network society. Humans have always lived in social networks. There's some good anthropology that, that says that maybe we are humans because of our uh, ability to to recognize social networks and to and to use them to our advantage. Now we have these media that vastly amplify our our social networks beyond the people that we can see on a daily basis. We our our politics takes place through net network publics. The the world is a network society. Understanding how networks work again. Con conveys advantages on the person who knows it, but also improves the comments for all of us if more people know it. So I wrote this book called Net Smart. I created a course that I taught it at Stanford on, on social media issues. And believe me, college students are, are as concerned and, and, and thinking critically about the downsides of the technology that they're immersed in as, as anybody else is. Yeah, it's so true. My newest book that's coming out uh, in January or February, depending on when they get everything back from the editor, is uh, Digital Self-Mastery Across Generations. And, and there's a lot of pieces in there that I think are surprising to people because we assume that the younger generation are just all addicts and that everything comes easy to them and they love technology and, you know, it's, it's all, you know, it's all they do. And that's not so. Fortunately, I, I think we actually have more in common with them than, than um, apart from them. We're just at different life stages, I think. Such great kernels of, of advice. And, and I think for those of you listening, all of this stuff will be in the show notes. And so, 
you know, don't worry about trying to write it down if you're driving. Please do not. Do not take notes while you're driving. Um, <laughs> you will be able to listen to this again and catch things on the show notes, and there will be links to all of Howard's work so that you can follow him and support him on uh, Patreon because he's doing really wonderful things, and there's just so many bits of knowledge there that we all could benefit from. I just want to say thank you so much for joining us today, Howard. This has been such a treat, and I'm sure our listeners really enjoyed it as well. Do you have any parting words that you want to share with the audience? Well, you know, I, in, when I first started using email, I, I started using a signature that I still use, and I think that it's still good, which is what it is, is up to us. Lovely. I love that. Well, thank you. What it is, is up to us, and... Thank you so much, Howard. We look forward to following your work and seeing where it goes in the future. Thank you for spending your time with us today. And that's all for us today. Bye-bye for now. We'll see you next time on the Evolving Digital Self podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, share, and we'll see you all soon. Thank you for joining us for the Evolving Digital Self. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app now so that you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, please give us a rating and a review and join the digital self-mastery movement to create more conscious use of technology by sharing it and telling your friends. Want to see where you fit on the digital self spectrum and how it might be impacting your business and relationships? Get your free copy of Digital Self Mastery today by clicking on the link in the show notes.